You're listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, a podcast from the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. I'm your host, Andy Moore. My guest today is John Opdyke. John is the president of Open Primaries and is, I think, one of the country's most visible and vocal advocates for primary reform. On a personal note, I, John is also one of my personal heroes in the reform space and a perennial source of inspiration for how I come to this work. And so I'm very excited to have him on the show with us today. John grew up outside of Chicago uh, in Evanston, Illinois, went on to attend the University of Michigan. He began his career as a fundraiser and researcher for the Rainbow Lobby, which was an organization that advocated for ballot access and debate reform in the United States and supported pro-democracy movement in the Congo. In 1992, John and uh, he joined Dr. Lenora Falani's independent campaign for president as a regional fundraising director and went on to assist her and her campaign against Mario Cuomo in the New York Democratic Party's gubernatorial primary. That same year, John participated in the founding of the New York State Independence Party, a state affiliate of the National Reform Party. A few years later, he became the director of development for independentvoting.org, where he was, I think, by the numbers, incredibly successful. You may have seen John on Fox News, MSNBC, Al Jazeera, Jazeera, excuse me, PBS, NBC. You may have read his writings or commentary um, in anything from USA Today to Newsweek, The Hill, The Fulcrum, and dozens of local publications. I'm excited. Welcome to the show, John Opdyke. Andy, great to be here. We're so excited I'm, to have I'm you. I'm glad to be one of your heroes. You're one of my heroes. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, John, you know, I, we like to hear a little bit about how our guests come to work in democracy reform and and where their passion is really rooted. Um, and it's been exciting to hear stories. We had Amber McReynolds um, on the program last week and uh, kind of heard her story of growing up in a, in a house that was rooted in civic engagement. Now, I think I read in the fulcrum last year that you ran for, I think, class president in like third grade. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I lost to Philip Hackbarth, who threw <laughs> lollipops to the my classmates, and I got, uh, you know, soundly defeated in a landslide. It was my first lesson in the in the realities of electoral campaigning. That's funny. That reminds me of, I'm a big fan of the West Wing and President Bartlett, you know, has a lifelong vendetta against the guy that ran against him for the school board. Right. And and Leo McGarry, the chief of staff, has to talk him down from right. campaigning against him as the president. <laughs> yeah. Right. I remember that episode. So I, I'm, I know it may be a long time ago and perhaps a, a, a silly story, but what prompted you to run for class president? I don't know. I was... Eight. I have no recollection <laughs> of that. I mean, more more my my interest in politics was was when I was in high school. I had friends both on the soccer team and and personal friends, and my girlfriend. They were from Chile, from Jamaica, from Haiti, from Mexico, um, and I was starting to get very interested in how does the world work. What's going on in the world? I don't know it. And I grew up in a, a very loving home with loving parents who really, we didn't have a civic environment in our home. We didn't talk politics. We didn't talk 
about those kind of things. And I felt, I felt very provincial. And so when I went to college, uh, this might sound arrogant. It is arrogant, but I, I, I didn't go there to kind of, you know, learn a trade or learn, you know, a particular skill. I wanted to become worldly. I wanted to learn how the world worked. And very early on, I had the fortune of meeting activists that were involved in third party politics, reform politics, change the, you know, democratize the system politics. This is back in the 80s when this is not a, a mainstream issue. And to me, it felt like a way to participate in American politics where I could actually discover how things worked, what role our country played internationally. I, I wanted to see how American democracy actually functioned. And to me, the best way to learn that was to do something subversive, to do something that was going up against the grain, not just, you know, my freshman year, I joined the Young Democrats and the Young Republicans. Both, both organizations? I was, so, I was so naive. I didn't know that was not done. I didn't know that you had to pick a team. I just was like, I want to learn how this works. And I was shunned by both. And independent politics really, to me, got me excited. Um, and I've, I've stuck with it ever since. Yeah. That's, that's hilarious. I, I attended a, a college where we only had college Republicans. That was the only political club on campus. And I know some of the faculty were a little nervous about that, but you know, when you were 20, I had no really understanding of why it was sure. okay. I assumed, oh, well, I guess if there were Democrats here, they would show up and have their own club. Um, and then learned later that that was somewhat squashed from above, right? That, ah. It was a, a donor's family who was Republican and that was able sure. to start it. Sure. So, you know, you mentioned third party and, and independent voters or unaffiliated voters. And I think the most recent stats I've seen show that independent voters comprise now roughly 40% of the American yeah. electorate. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about the role of those independent voters in American politics and, and how this group will affect elections in the future? Well, it's funny because independents are both the biggest factor in American politics and they're simultaneously completely invisible. It's kind of a, a trick of quantum physics, how they're, they're in two places simultaneously. So on the one hand, if you look at the national election results, um, independents have been swinging dramatically over the last 20 years in response to the Iraq war, in response to President Trump, in response to uh, a, a variety of factors, you know, they went dramatically with, with President Obama. He beat Senator McCain because of independence. And then they went the next year, they went back and they, they went with Mitt Romney. They broke for Trump in 2016 and then made a 17 point switch to uh, um, Joe Biden in 2020. So this group of voters is swinging all over the place. They're voting Democrat, they're voting Republican. Some of them are voting third party. They're unpredictable. They're looking for results. They're not locked into either party. So they're having a big impact. They're driving the conversation and the outcome in a lot of, of races. At the same time, 
the political pundits, the experts, the the kind of the, the pollsters and the political professionals in the country insist that there really are no independents. That when 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 someone takes a, a survey and they say, I'm an independent voter, all you have to do is ask them a question after that. You say, well, yeah, you're an independent, but how do you lean? Do you lean Democrat or do you lean Republican? And most people, because they're polite, will say, well, you know, I'm an independent, but I tend to vote Democrat or I tend to vote Republican. And they say, presto, you're not really an independent. You're just a Democrat light or a Republican light. We, we do the poll results with that. Independents disappear. But that's a, that's a sleight of hand. And it's a distortion, but it reveals something important, which is that we live in a political environment in which anything that doesn't conform to the two-party culture is ignored or discriminated against or pushed out of the conversation. Two-party politics is not just a structural issue, it's a cultural issue. It's how we do politics in the United States. You have to be an A or you have to be a B. There's no room for anything that isn't binary. And that's what I think independents are really pushing up against. Yeah, because there are so few things in life where you are forced to choose between two things and you're satisfied with either one of those, right? Like there's your car doesn't go 90 or zero, like there's different speeds you can travel, right? And you there are shades of gray, tones of brown, all these things that give life the the dynamic timber that make it interesting. And I think most of us feel that way about ourselves, right? That right. I'm not defined by a binary yes or no on anything. Right. Um, do, do you happen to know offhand, John, how the, the independent voters, uh, like demographics break down between race or ethnicity and age and those things? Yes, it's interesting. Um, it's broad. It's not, it, it slightly skews younger. So if you look at, um, if you look at voters that are under the age of 30, roughly 50% of them are independent. And if you look at voters who are over 65, it's roughly 25, 35%. So, but it's not 0%. Um, you know, younger African-Americans, for example, 35%. Of African Americans under the age of 35 are independents. Um, it's much less for older African Americans, and that has historical reasons. There's much more of a connection between the Democratic Party and the Civil Rights Movement um, that younger African Americans don't feel that same affinity. Um, but it's not geographic, it's all over the country, it's among all racial groups, all demographic groups. It's also not ideological. It's not liberal, conservative, moderate. It's in some ways, I think, I think the ideological way of categorizing and understanding voters, I think it's obsolete for all Americans, including liberals and conservatives, but it's especially obsolete among independents. Um, there, there was some great new polling out of Texas done by Cecilia Bayi and Michael Powell where they, they, they did deep dive research with Texas Latino voters. And what they, what they discovered, and I had the chance to interview them on my virtual discussion series, is that you have so many voters that put together 
a, a hodgepodge of ideological cultural sentiments that cannot be categorized as liberal or conservative. It's just, it's just using a mode of understanding that doesn't, doesn't actually correspond with how the American people are living their lives, especially independent voters. That's interesting. Last week, I think I was on a Zoom uh, viewing a presentation about some uh, recent report from George Mason University. Justin Guest was the uh, the researcher, and they had done some research, some polling with Ipsos. Cliff Young from Ipsos was part of it, and they produced a report that's called "The Fault Lines of America." It was very interesting. Have you seen this report? Yes. It's um, and on the call. Um, it was a bunch of uh, democracy reform folks, some of our listeners included. And the report, I think, is interesting and it provides some good information, but it really highlighted the two-party kind of dyad there. And so in the Q&A portion, there were a lot of questions of where are the independents? What does it say for independence? And they tried to dodge it a little bit or hedge around it. And eventually they just said, well, the results were not as interesting, which they meant not as clear cut as it was for Republicans and Democrats. The independents were kind of everywhere. So we didn't include them in this report because we were really just looking at these two parties. And someone made the point of, well, there's 40% of Americans that identify as independent. And so if you just leave out that, you've ignored a huge swath in an effort to describe everybody, right? Like yeah. you can't describe 10 people by only looking at six. And so it was a. Uh, I'm not in no way diminishing the report. I think it's it's helpful, but there is a lot more to it than I think might otherwise be known. Yeah, I, I just one word about that. I think there's so much political science going on right now. That is, I, I see. I will go after the Ipsos report <laughs> because these are smart people. They're influential people. They're, they're shaping how the American people think and understand that the, the difficulty that we're in as a country, the chaos, the, it's, it's a combination of chaotic and gridlocked. And there's so much difficulty and they're giving people an understanding that is not accurate and is dishonest. They're ignoring data. They're throwing it out because it doesn't fit their predetermined narrative. That's not good science. It's dishonest. And frankly, it holds back having an honest discussion about what's going on in the country. That's not so clear cut and not so easy to just frame in binary terms. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I think about how we establish our identity as people in all kinds of ways outside of politics. And we look at external sources, right? The media, magazines, television, music, you know, pop culture, and as, as one source of that. And we look at the people in our lives as well. And if the images that are being presented only represent a couple of worldviews uh, and we feel like we don't match one of those, it's a isolating experience. Yeah, and think about this culturally. And, and look, I, I we could have a four-hour discussion about the kind of the, the changes in culture when it comes to identity and expression. And I think there's positive and negative aspects of that. I think there's been some sacrificing of collective identity. But nonetheless, we live in a, a culture right now in which you have the right to describe yourself 
and then and have that be respected. You know, whether it's in the trans community, you know, pronouns, um, how you live, how you dress, that is respected. And yet, if you call yourself an independent, they say, well, that's not true. You're a Democrat light or a Republican light. In, in a way that, you know, if you said I'm I'm not uh, don't don't classify me on the on the you know the gender scale. I don't want to use your terminology. You get respect in a certain way, and I think that that just shows you how troublesome independents are, potentially troublesome for the political status quo. Yeah, I, I am increasingly fond of the term unaffiliated voter because it more clearly says. I am choosing to not affiliate with any of the parties sure. that are out there, right? Like sure. this is independent is good in other ways, but right. So I, I mentioned earlier reading your bio that you worked as the director of development for independentvoting.org. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, your experience there? And I guess even before that with the founding of the New York state independence party, um, I think the idea of forming a new party in any state sounds like a huge task that that a lot of folks um, shudder at the at the the prospect of that happening yeah i'll try to keep this brief in, in 92 ross perot got 20 million votes and it was a game changer and it came out of seemingly nowhere but there had been a lot of work done leading up to that uh, both in the term limits movement the uh the independent third party movement to kind of set the stage Ross Perot gets 20 million votes, and all of a sudden there's a national conversation about, hey, we might have a, a, a new third party in this country. So independent voting was formed in 1994 to almost be a caucus or a faction within the third party movement. It had one mission. The mission was let's work hard to make sure that the formation of a new third party in this country is multiracial, that it includes the black community, the gay community, the progressive community, uh, that it is non-ideological and inclusive of the diversity of Americans. That if we form a new third party that, that doesn't break down some of these barriers that exist, it's really not gonna be positively contributory. So we set out to shape the forming of the Reform Party, and that's the role that we played inside the Reform Party, outside the Reform Party, within the Independence Party, um, which was an affiliate of the Reform Party. And it all crashed down in 2000 when the Reform Party blew up. It exploded. But we kept going. And one of the ways that we kept going was to focus on uh, independent voters, you know, organizing them, building them, training them without having a third party at all. And we and people told us we were crazy. You can't organize voters with, except if you have a party, whether it's the Democrats, Republicans, or a third party. You need a party to organize. And we said, well, we're going to try to organize without a party. And we spent a long time doing that. And I think had some very modest but important success, one of which was incubating the issue of open primaries that independent voters don't wanna join a party, but they wanna fully participate in every, every stage of the electoral process. So the, the whole issue of, of open primaries grew out of organizing and talking to and connecting with independent voters outside of a, uh, of a political party environment. 
Sure. Yeah, it, it strikes me that you know most parties are organized around a, a party platform, a, a set right. of beliefs or opinions about policy outcomes. Right. Uh, and if you are consciously trying to not do that, um, how do you how do you drive uh, consensus? How do you get people to come together? Well, what we did in the Reform Party, and we had some success. We got Jesse Ventura elected. We we built a multiracial leadership uh, team. We you know it, we 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 really had some success at organizing people around a vision, not a platform. The vision was the Reform Party would be a party open to all kinds of Americans, liberal, conservative, moderate, whatever that we were not going to take positions on divisive ideological issues. We were going to build a movement around two core principles, fiscal responsibility and political reform. And that that was a, a, a kind of an open tent that we said the two party system is not serving America. We need a more competitive, inclusive democracy, and we need to have a, a you know, a, a, a fiscal discussion, um, that is more in line with how, you know, less kind of deficit spending. And we did that and people were attracted to it. We had events, we had events where you had young men from Harlem wearing Malcolm X t-shirts, sitting next to big burly guys in tri-corner hats from Georgia. And they were hanging out and, you know, building this organization together. And it was a wonderful experiment um, and it was destroyed. Um, this, the story of the reform party, unfortunately has not been fully told, um, and someday it will. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a word from some of our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by IVN.us, an open news platform for independent-minded authors and readers. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to IVN.us where you listen to podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or iHeartRadio. Hey, Unregit listeners. I'm Emily Corsetti from The Purple Principle. How did our country get so polarized? The rise of television news, the rise of social media, every single force is pushing us apart. How do we get less partisan? People have a lot more in common than they think they do on policy. And can independent-minded Americans bridge the divide? I think that there's value to having folks like me outside of the parties. Take a 360-degree tour of partisanship with The Purple Principle, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, and now back to the show. So you mentioned organizing around uh, democracy reform, basically, yeah. right? How to make the system work for more people, which right. is a, a, a bold goal and, and something very different, I think, from the usual smattering of issues that most voters are tired of hearing people bicker about on Sunday morning talk shows, right? Um, so right. obviously here at Nanner, uh, all of our members right, are focused on some sort of democracy reform. Your role in that right now is with open primaries. Can you, um, I maybe I'll start with a question that I don't think enough people have asked of themselves or of the system. And that is, why do we even have primaries and are they necessary? Well, primaries were a big step forward. 
100 years ago. They were an effort led by, by various leaders of the, of the progressive movement uh, from you know, Bob LaFollette on down to democratize the process by which candidates were selected, which up until that point, they were, you know, that was those decisions were made in, in the proverbial smoke-filled rooms by party mandarins. And at that time, a um, hundred years ago, party primaries were a big step forward. Now, this is something that every reformer should learn, which is that any reform can be transformed into a problem. I don't care what it is, ranked choice voting, gerrymandering reform, you name it. There is this brilliant genius that the Democrats and Republicans have, which is to convert social motion, progressive change, structural change into the new establishment, into the new, you know, uh, status quo. And it's a fascinating and troubling process. And we can never, what, what I'm saying about that is anybody who thinks, oh, we're going to enact open primaries, problem solved. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's like, it's like political jujitsu where they use the momentum exactly. against them. Yeah. That, that's, you nailed it, Andy. And, and so I, I think, you know, to your question, they were a reform and now they're used in new sophisticated ways to continue to divide and silo eyes and segregate the American people. And part of why I work on open primaries, although I support the broad reform agenda, the reason I prioritize open primaries is that I think the role that partisan primaries play in America today, it's almost like the role of the bouncer at the nightclub. The, the primaries are the enforcers. They enforce a certain type of division and culture. Before the general election, they say what politics is going to be about is, is a us versus them environment. It's almost like the, the training school, the ROTC, the bound, whatever you want to call it. It's where the table gets set. And I think by going at the primaries... And opening that up and chipping away at it, we have a chance of could we create a political process that's less culturally and structurally controlled by the Democratic and Republican parties? That's my hope. That's my goal. That's my vision. Yeah, I'm picturing a, a boxing ring, right? Uh, before the match starts, each fighter is in his corner talking to his coach and his coach is shouting at him and trying to get him hyped up for this right. fight. That's right. the primary. And then they go into the general in the middle of the ring and, uh, you know, gently touch gloves and then, <laughs> then get after it. Um, so uh, the open primaries is a, is a broad term that refers right. to or includes a lot of different ways that primaries could be open. Uh, and so I'd, I'd like to kind of break it down because I think people say I'm for open primaries. But as you and I were discussing before we started recording, what does that really mean is a, a key question um, when people are working towards this. So uh, can you lay out, if you say open primaries, what that means yeah, to you and what those yeah. options are? It, it's, there's lots of options. I mean, there's, the, there's how open primaries are practiced in almost every city in the country, which is you don't have partisan elections at all. 
you have an open election in either one round or two rounds. And, you know, the top vote getters go from the primary to the general election, but they're not party primaries at all. They're just, you know, it's a municipal election. Then there's open partisan primaries where you have a Democratic primary and a Republican primary, and you allow independent voters to participate in either one. The presidential primary is, I think, the best example of that, because you're not electing candidates, you're electing delegates to a national convention. Then there's top two, which is a form of nonpartisan primaries where the two top vote getters in any race go to the general election, regardless of, of party. So you end up with general elections that are sometimes, like in, in California and Washington, two Democrats facing off or two Republicans facing off or a Democrat versus an, an, uh, a Green. And then you have the newest forms of open primaries, which is final four and final five. We just enacted uh, top four with ranked choice voting in Alaska, where you have a nonpartisan primary, the four Top candidates go from the primary to the general election, and then you select which one you want using a ranked ballot. Um, and, and then there's a version of that which has not yet been enacted, but a lot of people are working, uh, particularly Catherine Gale, is to have the five top candidates go from the primary to the general election and use ranked choice voting there. So there's a lot of different models. Uh, I like that. I like that. I think that um, all of these offer opportunities for people at the local and the state level to come together and say, how do we dismantle the current system that is dividing and conquering voters? What's the best pathway for us given, do we have ballot referendum or do we have to go to the legislature? What's the current system? How does our voter registration work? Some states register voters by party, some states don't. Um, and I like the fact that there's not a single policy solution, that there's lots of different options that people can, can pursue. Because again, I, I don't think that simply enacting this reform is going to be enough in any of its forms. I think we've got to see this as let's open up the primaries everywhere and then let's see what new forms of political life that are not constrained by the old system, we can nurture and support and develop. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So in, in my state, as listeners probably know, I live in Oklahoma and we we have kind of a, a mix of these things. So we have nonpartisan, just open municipal elections, right? So you whoever runs and you run on your individual merits and and you and if if necessary, if no one has a majority, there's a a runoff which becomes right the general. Uh, right. And then at the county and state level, it is a semi-closed primary where for the last few cycles, the Democratic Party has allowed independents to vote in that. The Republican Party and the Libertarian Party have not. So they have closed over there and it's semi-open, right, on the Democratic side. Um, but for what I, I experience is that it means we have elections almost every month, right? There's at some level, there's an election and you have a hard time <laughs> as someone who pays close attention, right? It's hard to know. Remember, if it's a primary, if it's a primary runoff, if it's a general, you know, and at which level of government uh, it is. And I think it can feel overwhelming to voters, yeah. right? To just there's something all the time and I don't care and I'm going to go to work and do my thing. Right. It also strikes me as 
potentially very expensive, right? That's a lot of ballots to print. That's a lot of um, efforts to roll the machines out and do all of that. What uh, is there, I guess my question is, is there a cost savings that we typically see with open primaries? Well, no, actually. Um, it's in some ways when you when you open the door and let more people participate, it's more expensive. Candidates have to spend more money. You have to print more ballots. Uh, it's not a cost savings, though there are, like for example, in New York State, they've scheduled presidential primaries, state primaries, and federal primaries all on different days, all in different months. The point being that politicians want lower turnout. Mm -hmm. So the, the federal candidates want lower turnout. The state candidates want lower turnout. Okay, so how do you accomplish that? You spend $25 million on each primary instead of putting them all on the same day. Um, those kind of things are very cynical and you know problematic. I don't think fundamentally, though, that opening up the system is 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 a cost saving activity. Um, I have a, a very contrarian view, which I, I nobody supports what I'm about to say. Nobody. But I think there's way too little money in politics. Hmm. I think I mean, Procter and Gamble spends more money in a month on their marketing budget than all the dollars spent in American politics at every level every year. That's incredible. Yeah. And in some ways, what's so scandalous about American politics is how cheap it is to buy access and to skew policy and to control the dialogue. I mean, a couple hundred million dollars here and there, and you're the king of the world. And that's not a lot of money in today's economy. And in fact, the amount of dollars spent on other programs in, in our government as compared to the fundamental basics of democracy is, is it's kind of shocking, shockingly low. Um, so I'm not a big, I'm not a big proponent of, Hey, let's, let's make it more efficient. I'm like, no, we got to make it less efficient because we need more money in our political environment. It well, just needs a, to be, it needs to be spent in the right way. Right. And, and, and like many things in life, you get what you pay for. Right? Exactly. <laughs> you get what you pay for. Well, um, John, as we kind of, uh, wind down here, one of the things that I find interesting about you as a person, aside from your, your politics and your, your passion for reform is, uh, your involvement in the arts. So I know at least before COVID you were performing and directing improv at the Castillo theater, yeah. um, in New York city. My brother-in-law is a, a stage actor in Chicago. Oh, cool. And we were, we were recently discussing how performance art can, I don't know, help audiences better understand real life, right? And I think we often use the term political theater, right? And in terms of politics to describe the posturing and the horse trading that occurs in newspapers and on television. But that often feels like it's disconnected from, from real life or from at least actual governing. Um, so as someone who to some extent holds politics and performance art um, in each hand, how do you how do you see those things inspiring or influencing one another? Well, you know, I'm not I'm not a big fan of the kind of Brechtian school of kind of using theater to teach lessons to people, like kind of pedagogical theater. I, I'm much more 
drawn to um, improvisational theater. And, and, and to me, the connection has to do with human creativity and creating power, creating conversation and using, I, I, I draw enormous um, kind of, not inspiration, that isn't the word, but strength from knowing that human beings have a enormous capacity to create with one another. And they don't need scripts to do that. And there is no more arena in American life that is as scripted as American politics. I mean, we see this time and time again. Look at COVID. I mean, COVID happens and everyone is without a script for about a week. And then it's all locked down. You've got the Republican position and the Democratic position. And there's no room for any any honest, real conversation, not no room, there's room, but very little. So to me, improv is not just a theater trick. It's a, it's an ethos. It's a philosophy. It's a practice that says ordinary people should be better positioned to create our political culture and political life and cultural life and civic life and not just be the consumers of it which is the role that we're currently cast in. We just show up on election day and vote for what the political professionals have given us. So that's how I think about it. That's not a great answer, but interestingly, there is a growing movement centered around the Applied Improv Network. And I know these people and my, my friend and colleague, Marion Rich and Don Wiseman have just written a book uh, about this. Uh, there, there's so many people now using improv as a methodology and a tool for, for, for empowerment and for giving ordinary people a new way of approaching some of the thorny and difficult challenges in our world. And I, I find that very exciting. Interesting. It, it's striking to, we could use what people would assume is acting, right? But as a way to get in touch with a deeper sense of authenticity of yes. who we are. Yes. Fascinating. Well, John, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Andy. My guest has been John Opdyke, president of Open Primaries. You can learn more about him and about his organization at openprimaries.org. Thanks for listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic. This podcast is produced by the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. For more information about our organization and how you can join, visit nonpartisanreformers.org.